And now we're delighted to be joined by David Nichols. How well I remember giggling over Starter for 10 back when I was a bookseller in 2004 and then crying over one day in 2009. David's novels have been translated into 40 languages and he's sold over 8 million copies worldwide. He's also written lots for TV, including a series of Cold Feet, and most recently, Patrick Melrose, which he adapted from Edward St Albans' novels. He's here today to talk to us about Sweet Sorrow, a poignant, funny book about first love and Shakespeare. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. What does it feel like to know that eight million copies of your books are sort of being read yeah, worldwide? Yeah, that, that seems strange, doesn't it? I mean, it's strange because it's a wonderful number. I, it doesn't make me any calmer, you know. I, I feel <laughs> I feel nervous every time. It's always frightening, especially because I've, I've always wanted the books to be different from each other, different worlds and different mm-hmm. tones and different structures. And and so there's a there's a certain risk, it feels like, in, in every publication. It's wonderful. I've been very lucky, but I, I still get very nervous. It certainly does seem to be the case that for writers, for novelists, uh, having a success doesn't make writing easier, does it? No. I mean, certainly after one day I was completely paralysed for a long time not just because I was spending so much time publicising it around the world but because suddenly there was this expectation which didn't exist before one day you know no one was waiting for one day the book before the understudy had actually had not built on Start of a Ten it had actually not sold as many copies and even though I thought it was a much better book so one day was very easy to write not easy to write but very enjoyable to write for that reason and then there was a year where I tried and I just banged my head against a wall and tried kind of free form writing and making it up as I went along and and uh, trying to get a thousand words down even if I didn't know what the story was mm-hmm. a sort of weird kind of stream of consciousness writing that was just terrible really and nothing much came out of it it took me a year to write about 30,000 words which I then abandoned mm-hmm. so I'm very careful to always follow this up by saying that I was very 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 lucky to be in that situation and if that's the worst thing that ever happens to you as a writer, then that's wonderful. But um, it did make me quite self-conscious because suddenly you're thinking, well, I'm, uh, is my readership young? Is it old? Is it male? Is it female? Do they want another love story? Should I foil those expectations and write something very dark or very different? And none of that occurred to me when I was writing one day. Now, with this book, I feel a little calmer. I feel I, I love Us, the last book, and I... I feel a little freer to write books that are different each time, but nevertheless sort of share a certain DNA. And tell us about Sweet Sorrow. What were the first ingredients of it? How did it come to you? Well, I wanted to write a coming-of-age story, but I'd already done it, and I sort of thought, well, I I blew that with Starter for Ten, really. You know, a lot of first novels are coming-of-age novels, often quite autobiographical. How can I explore youth, being young again? And, And so I decided that I wanted to write a memory book, you know, someone writing back with a certain distance. And there's a great tradition of that with coming-of-age novels, with novels like, I thought about novels like Le Grand Moon or uh, Philip Roth's novella Goodbye Columbus, you know, stories that are infused with a kind of a nostalgia that isn't necessarily dewy-eyed, that's quite realistic and tough. And so I thought I would write a novella, a 50,000-word love story, um, set over the course of a summer, someone looking back, a sort of go-between structure, and um, as I started to make notes, it transformed into something else. You know, it, it, uh, as you'd expect, it. I, I had a, a file, a very baggy file, into which I threw scraps and ideas and character sketches and little bits of dialogue and little structural ideas, and then I took a 
time off to write Patrick Melrose. And then I went back to this big sack of loose writing and pulled out the things that seemed interesting to me. I'd also wanted to write about theatre, but in the right way. You know, I think it's quite a hard world to write about from the inside. It can be quite off-putting. It can seem quite uh, pretentious and precious. And I wanted to have fun with it, not to be disrespectful, but to write from an outsider's point of view. And that, <laughs> that story idea, the idea of someone acting against their will, about uh, someone sort of almost drafted into a production that they didn't want to be part of and initially finding it ridiculous. That seemed like a, a good source of comedy. And the other strand, the, the strand about um, Charlie and his father, that very much originated in the writing. I knew that his parents would be divorcing, breaking up while the action took place. But that stuff is the stuff that took me by surprise. That wasn't part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit more about Charlie and his dilemma, because you do feel very sorry for him, because he's having to father his father, really, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, often characters come out of opposition to previous things that you've written. And in Start of a Ten, Brian Jackson is a very kind of earnest sort of A-plus student. He's actually not particularly intelligent in terms of how he lives his life, but he's very dedicated to the idea of intelligence and knowledge. And I wanted to write about someone who wasn't like that at all, who who feels rather invisible, rather lost, rather out of touch, and who finds himself stuck in a, in a, in a situation uh, that he's desperate to escape without really having the means to escape or the confidence to escape. So Charlie's father has been declared bankrupt and his wife has had an affair and he's caught... He's in the middle of a terrible depression that no one has identified as depression. And Charlie suddenly finds himself facing this long, claustrophobic summer, you know, watching TV with the curtains drawn, Mm. a long, melancholy, lonely summer Mm -hmm. that he's desperate to escape. And at the beginning of the novel, he's desperate to flee his family to get away from his dad. But as events develop, he he realizes he's going to have to find another way of dealing with this role of carer. You know, initially he's a carer who doesn't care. He's a carer who just wants to flee. Uh, But by the end of the novel, hopefully he's found another way of dealing with his father's malaise and a more sympathetic, open-hearted way of behaving, living with each other. Mm -hmm. There's a recurring line, a sort of pretentious line that the the production's movement director comes up with, the idea that acting will teach them another way to move through the world. And that's what Charlie's looking for, a way to move through the world that is a little freer of the angst and anxiety he feels. And there's quite a lot about being a man, isn't there? Because his relationship with his friends is quite interesting, very sort of boisterous, the the young male of the species. Um, I really loved the bit, because you don't get a lot of darts in literature. No. Um, Tell (laughs) us about Agincourt. Agincourt. (laughs) Agincourt is a game we used to play. I mean, it's not stuffed full of autobiography, this book, but we did. I don't know what we were thinking play this stupid game where we would be in someone's back garden we'd all have to pick a spot on the lawn and then throw tungsten tipped darts up into the air (laughs) and the object of the game was not to move not to flinch obviously not to look up but not to run away and I remember playing it once with with Stephen Bentley next door and a dart landed right in the top of his head and was there sticking vertically out of his skull and we thought this was the funniest thing we once we realized he wasn't seriously injured almost the funniest thing we'd ever seen. And there was a lot of that kind of thing. You know, we were always throwing each other into rivers and getting each other drunk. And I, for a long time, felt very nostalgic about this, not so much the personal injury, but the kind of <laughs> the intensity of that 
friendship. And then as I become a parent myself, I look back and I'm, I, I feel a bit more rueful about it. I'm actually slightly horrified by the way we used to be with each other as boys, the aggression of it. Because in some cases, it was, it, was, it was a weird, twisted kind of love. It was born out of great affection. But there were definitely other cases where it was a kind of bullying, really. Mm-hmm. And the names we called each other and the way we behaved with each other. There was, a, there was definitely an, an edge to a lot of it. And I feel very sad about that, that that's sort of my abiding memories of school was this extremely intense, vicious name calling. Mm-hmm. I can't remember being called... David for five years really it was it was pretty tough and when I went to sixth form college I I sort of I think for the first time saw a way out of that a way out of that kind of well again that language that pattern of behavior which is why in many ways the leap from school to sixth form the summer that this novel deals with was almost as big a leap for me as um the leap into university, which was the subject of my first book. Mm-hmm. And Charlie sort of leaps into Fran, doesn't he? Yeah, I wanted to write a really classic summer love story. The obvious thing to do when you're writing a love story against the background of Romeo and Juliet is to write a version of Romeo and Juliet, you know, to have the real life <laughs> events just miraculously mimic the events of the play. So what are the barriers? What makes Charlie a Montague and, and, and Fran a Capulet? Well, I I didn't want to do that, you know. I wanted to actually make it pretty mutual, pretty fond, pretty warm and caring between them. And I suppose if there is a barrier between them, it's one of class and education, that Fran doesn't feel self-conscious about being in a play or reciting Shakespeare. Or, you know, she's not pretentious, but she has grown up in a stable middle-class family, which is very aspirational, and there are lots of books around, and she shares her parents' taste in music, and... And Charlie hasn't had that experience and is both intrigued by it and also a little excluded by it. I think I've written quite a lot about, you know, how class and education and culture all get tangled up. And I feel very passionate about books and films and plays and music. And at the same time, recognise that sometimes they can be used as a as a bit of a weapon, as a stick to beat people with. And I, I, I wanted to get some of that ambiguity in. I very much enjoyed the, you know, sort of the well-meaning adults bringing Shakespeare to people. But the yeah. reason why Charlie ends up doing the Shakespeare is because he—it's the only way he can spend time with the yeah. girl that he likes. There's no other way. It's a sort of—it's a terrible deal he has to make. You know, he has to do the trust games if he wants to see. Fern. <laughs> it's a brilliant title, I thought. Again, a yeah, title that has immediate I... appeal, but continues to resonate. Um, as you read the book, and I'm still thinking about it. When in the process did the title come to you? I wish I'd made it up. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> sort of, it's kind of um, well chosen, but it's uh, it's a it's a lovely contrast, isn't it? And I was slightly shy of it, I think, because it had the word sweet in, and I didn't want to make it sound as if there was, I think, saccharine about mm-hmm. the love story. But it does sort of summon up the tone, really. So I I tested it out, and it got a good response. And it it now, of course, it seems to me. The only title, but I'm not particularly good at titles. You know, Start of Ten was called Knowledge for a long time, mm-hmm. and One Day was called St. Swithin's Day for a long time. And, you know, I, I it isn't um, Us was incredibly hard to name. Mm-hmm. It was called Last Summer for a long time, and then Just Summer, and then all kinds of different uninspiring titles. But Sweet Sorrow, I realized quite early on, was the, the one that fitted. And it does, is, is that poignant quality, isn't it? I, when, yeah. I think my favourite books are poignant, which is to be 
sort of sad and sweet and funny at the same time, I suppose. Yes, I mean, I think if you put it, the word sweet sorrow in their context, parting is such sweet sorrow that I would say goodnight until tomorrow. It's about finding pleasure in sadness mm-hmm. and pleasure in sadness is the definition of melancholy. I, I wanted it to be a, a melancholy book, not a depressing book or a grim book or a melodramatic book, but for it to have the feel of, um, you know, the leaves turning on the trees and the summer coming to an end and the nights closing in and a sense of loss, of missed opportunities, of sadness, as well as all the kind of the fun and frivolity and lightness and brightness of new friendship and falling in love. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a book that's going to be seen on sun loungers all over the world. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Goodness, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> You write books, you do lots of other work, you write for TV and you also yeah. adapt for other people. How do you divide up your time? Well, unfortunately, that's not always under my control. Sometimes a green light will go and you're both delighted that the project is happening and a little bit horrified at the workload. So Mm -hmm. while I'm promoting Sweet Sorrow, I'm simultaneously working on the scripts of Us, the previous novel, which we're adapting for the BBC. So in between book events, I get script notes. And um, it's, it's not ideal, but I'm very lucky to be in that situation. The last three or four years have been a bit much. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very tired. And I'd love a bit of a break. So once Us has finished filming, which will be in the autumn, uh, and once I've finished promoting the book, I'm going to try and take a deep breath and, and clear my head because I'd love to write more fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Sweet Sorrow would have been uh, around much earlier if Patrick Melrose hadn't also mm-hmm. been greenlit. I really did have to put it on hold for a, for a year and a half while that took over. Mm-hmm. But um, I love writing fiction. It's the thing that I, certainly when I'm stuck in a four-hour script meeting, it's the thing I long to do. And um, I'm going to try and clear the decks and clear my head and and not go straight into another big TV project. Well, good luck with that and I will very much look forward to your next novel whilst not wanting to put you under any (laughs) pressure at all. No, I I think a certain amount of pressure is is very helpful. (laughs) Um, But thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) 